This is the David Cassidy Connections Podcast with your host, Louise Poynton. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's podcast. Today we are going to hear from Dr. Haley Gino McConnell. She is a cultural historian from Ontario, Canada and a self-described second-generation David Cassidy fan. Dr. Gino McConnell became a fan in the 2000s, long after his heyday in the 1970s. In my book Cherish David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, she wrote movingly about her battle with anorexia, explaining how his posters which adorned her wall and by playing his 1972 album Cherish helped her begin a slow but steady climb back to health. But in this episode, she delves a little bit deeper. She gives an insight into how, with the benefit of distance and hindsight, she became a fan of an international superstar instead of the manufactured image. She talks about the marketing and manipulation of teenage idols, how David unknowingly helped steer her out of the agony of anorexia, and explains what makes him such a memorable idol. This is her story and her observations from a historian point of view, as well as a fan. I remember my first encounter with David Cassidy and the Partridge family itself was visiting my grandmother's house and looking through um, old drawers where she had things with my mother's put away. And among them were her record albums. And the only Partridge family album that she had was the first one released in 1970. And then later, as I got a little bit older and started to realize, oh, you know, my mom is this girl, this now woman, uh, with a childhood and a history like mine, maybe I should ask her about what her experiences were like growing up. And so I started to say, well, talk to me about this. Who's, who are these people? What's the Partridge family? And um, she had not been as big of a, a fan of the Partridge family as I came to be. So when I refer to myself as a second generation fan, my fandom far eclipsed my mother's, you know, like I said, she had just the one album, it had the number one hit, I think I love you on it. And that was about the extent, you know, she was born in 1961, pretty much every 10 or 11 year old in the early 70s had that album, probably whether they went on to become a massive David Cassidy fan. So her realm was more Donny Osmond. So I said, well, tell me, who's this, who's this guy in the back? It says, you know, starring Shirley Jones, featuring David Cassidy. Who's this David Cassidy guy? And all she could really remember was, she said, well, I think Shirley Jones was his stepmother. Yeah, in real life, she was his stepmother, and he played the older brother, Keith. And yeah, I remember thinking that Laurie was really pretty. And, and it wasn't until a few years later, and this sounds completely bonkers, but it's absolutely true. Uh, he came to me in a dream. <laughs> well, one night, I just, uh, I, I had this funny dream about, you know, David Cassidy and the Partridge family. And I woke up and I thought, you know, there's something there. I want to learn more about this. And at that time, um, when I was 14 years old in the year 2000, I had a little thing called the internet. So I was able to log on and just start researching, you know, who's David Cassidy? Oh, okay, this is interesting. Here's his story. And oh, wow, he had a much longer musical career than I would have thought. Oh, he's more than just the Partridge family. How about that? And just kind of went down the rabbit hole from there. So, I mean, that was my introduction and initiation. But as far as the falling in love aspect, I mean, you would know, Louise, all you have to do is put on an album. I mean, it's, it's an instant hook. There's really nothing quite like David Cassidy's vocal um, capabilities. And I don't just mean in terms of technical skill, although I think he's very underrated in terms of his technical skill. I mean, his, you know, his range, his ability, his vibrato is, is gorgeous, but it's the warmth and the intimacy uh, that really captures you from, you know, the first first note. And I think the other thing that was impressed upon me and that I was maybe able to connect with better than fans who would have been introduced to him in the early 70s was I could hear the depth and the pain of this individual in his songs because I was able to read, you know, his autobiography. I was able to read all kinds of interviews that came out after the Partridge family where he was revealing his insecurities as an actor and performer at the time, how he felt helmed in by the industry that he was a part of, how he was struggling to connect with people because he was this product and that most people he, meted, he met just wanted a piece of him. Um, and so that was something else that I could see underneath the lyrics of the songs. And for me, I was never listening um, you know, up here on the superficial level. I was always listening to the underneath, who David, you know, hoped that people would get to know and who he ultimately, the thing that he ultimately came to be and represent beyond 
the image. I guess that's it. That, that voice, that hair, and those eyes, uh, you can't argue with it. <laughs> to me, there is something. There's a really interesting, bear with me for a moment. I hope I can communicate it accurately. There's a really interesting feminist analysis about, about how David Casty was perceived, received, and marketed, where he was slightly androgynous looking. He was a feminized figure. He's a slight man with long hair, even, you know, the styles in the seventies that weren't just unique to, to David, but to, um, you know, the, the culture more widely, uh, you know, there was kind of more gender fluidity uh, among, among clothing at the time. And so he had kind of that presentation, which then made it easy to dismiss him as somebody who was, you know, fluffy, not very substantial. And I don't think that was just a commentary on David himself. I think that was a commentary on women or about femininity or about things that are perceived as inherently female. His career has been trivialized because, and we know, again, as, as fans, that there was a, a very large male fan base. But if you're reading um, articles about him at the time in the 70s, I mean, they really are talking about the teeny bopper girl fans. And how dismissive of both his talent and his fans to suggest that because the type of talent that he possesses, the types of songs that he's singing, the way that he looks, because that seemed to appeal more to women, it's less than. Why? Even if, he, even if he hadn't had one male fan, and we know that wasn't true, even if he hadn't, why would it be the case that 50% of the world's population, that their interests and their likes and the things that they gravitate towards are lesser than? So I think, I think it's a negative commentary on people who present more feminine or soft or sensitive. I think it's a negative commentary on female fans. I think it's a negative commentary on youth fans and youth culture as well. That there was, because of the baby boom generation, because they were the largest generation, I think there were efforts to constantly undermine the things that they enjoyed, the things that they partook in, and the idols that they lifted up. Because I think the generation that came before realized that they were losing their power and that they were lesser in numbers and that one day this generation was going to take over the world. And if they gave credit to that generation's sensibilities and said, oh yeah, this is legitimate music or art or, or performance, um, that maybe that generation would have recognized their power. So by constantly dismissing these young people and the things that they liked, by constantly dismissing young women and the things that they liked, I think it kept a lot of people in their place. And even from... You know, I think with David, his cultural significance, unfortunately, and it's so sad, and I hate that this is the truth for him, happens to be a little bit of that cautionary too, a tale, too, um, that he was treated like a product, and that when you're treated like a product, um, what that ultimately does for your self-esteem and for your identity. And ironically, isn't it interesting that David was kind of packaged and manufactured to appeal to female fans but I imagine that he experienced a lot of things that we as women do experience which is being judged on the surface being judged for your appearance being judged for your sexuality you know turn on the charm smile don't complain don't say anything critical don't produce anything um, that that uh, destabilizes the status quo so there is that identification, I think, between, in some ways, David and his fans of who the experiences his fans had and who they were and the experience of who David was made out to be. So I think that's kind of one of the more interesting stories of, of, about who David Cassidy as a symbol and as an icon was. The majority of the Partridge family canon, I don't think represents lyrically or sonically who he was, because for the most part, he was just singing the words of others. But vocally, I think that you can hear that. I think that that was perhaps an outlet for him. And I mean, you know, we can psychoanalyze all the live long day, but I think that's what makes his voice and his work stand the test of time, even though it was written for a younger audience, even though some critics have dismissed it as quote unquote bubblegum music, is you can hear that he was kind of, for lack of a better term, making lemons out of lemonade. It, these weren't necessarily the songs that he wanted to be singing. This wasn't necessarily the career that he wanted to be having. But my God, did he pour heart and soul into every vocal that he recorded. Um, and you can almost feel that, that strain and that pressure emanating vocally from him of trying to break free from that box. And almost, like I said, communicating a subtext under some of those fluffier lyrics. But then certainly when you get into his solo work, 
I mean, there's, there's no doubt that he's trying to communicate those things. And I think, you know, I was reflecting on some of my favorite albums and probably two of my favorite David Cassidy albums are uh, The Higher They Climb and Home Is Where The Heart Is, which had no impact here stateside. Uh, you know, I'm from Canada, but pretty much his career in Canada and the United States ran parallel. Um, so I don't think that the, the average, you know, casual fan in Canada would even be aware of these albums. But you see how many of the songs were written by him. Um, and I think especially when you're looking at, I think with the Higher They Climb album, it's really interesting because he's influenced by, you can get kind of a little bit of the funky disco elements sonically that are coming in, which is just a piece mm -hmm. of, of the time. But you also get, you know, he does like a, a throwback with Bebopalula, where he's kind of getting into that bluesy tradition of things that he would have maybe grown up with and almost paying that reverence and respect to the early days of rock and, and teen idolum, which would, you know, later uh, help to spell out his career. But then you also hear, I think, this is when his voice starts to get a little bit of that gravel and that grit in it, where he's moving into the kind of the blues tradition. I mean, he's always cited the blues and B.B. King among some of his greatest influences. So you can see not only lyrically some of the themes of, um, you know, loneliness and identity crises and maybe self-discovery that he's singing about, he's now free to sing about post-Partridge family, but even just um, the style of music that he's communicating in. I think maybe these albums weren't as well received because one, they were unexpected. They didn't necessarily reflect the type of style that had made him initially popular. So if fans were wanting more of the same, they weren't getting it. I don't know if it's being a David Casty fan or if it's, again, having that benefit of hindsight and being a historian. Because to me, as a record of who David was as an artist and a person, those two albums make perfect sense um, because of the things that they communicate, because of his past influences and who he was trying to grow into. Because when you listen to David's recording of I Write the Songs, there was no other way to interpret and perform that song than the way that David did it. In terms of meaning and depth and poignancy, I write the songs in Barry Manilow's hands means next to nothing. I write the songs in David's hands is really poignant, clear snapshot of an experience uh, you know, that we know David had as a recording artist. Obviously it's sanctioned, it's not plagiarism, but you could almost imagine that David could have felt that way, right? Like you make kind of this beautiful song, this for all intents and purposes masterpiece, and then somebody else goes and does the exact same thing and somehow gets the recognition for it. You know, it's not literal plagiarism, there's no theft, obviously the, the recording rights and publishing rights were all on the up and up, but I would have felt that way. What I also really admire about it though, is that I think David's unique way artistically of communicating pain is to, um, there's definitely a catharsis there. There's a respect for it. And there's a way of not, I don't think that he, he's not aggressive about expressing it, right? You don't hear, which, you know, maybe he has every right for some of the ways that he was taken advantage of in his career, but you don't hear bitterness. You don't hear resentment. You maybe hear a little bit of regret and sorrow and longing. You hear those kinds of things, but I think that's what also makes it palatable and endure the test of time because you don't get the sense. I mean, here's a man who was sort of handed the world on a silver platter um, unwittingly. It wasn't some, that wasn't the goal that he had for his career. Um, and then it was taken from him and in a really unceremonious fashion, in a sense, he was abandoned and left to his own devices by the industry and fans at this kind of mid 70s point. Again, I'm speaking more in North America. This I'm trying to find myself. He could have told his own story in a very different way. And I don't think he ever communicated that through his art. Like I said, in that sort of bitter, resentful, um, angsty, hard edge way. I think he was still trying to communicate a love letter to the opportunities that he had been given while also proving himself in a new way. And what a sort of beautiful, honorable, respectful way to communicate those struggles. From another point of view, could it be a case of him doing all this new solo material, but not extending himself as much as he perhaps could because he was afraid of being rejected by those who loved him the most? You know, that's, I mean, that's a, a, a great question. And I wonder that, but at the same time, I mean, if you, now again, this is with the historian lens on, right? So I may be looking at this through the lens of how I knew David came to perceive his fandom 
with hindsight and that he believed that in fact, in some ironic way that nobody really did love him. You know, they loved Keith, they loved the project and the product that was David Cassidy. So in, in terms of him feeling a fear of abandoning that persona because he was worried about losing those who loved, you know, the idolatry of those who loved him most, it's certainly possible. I would think that would be more on the part of maybe the record company or people who were working with him at the time that they maybe would have wanted to keep him boxed in. Um, because I think he was at a bit of a breaking point in the mid to late 70s with you loved something that wasn't me. I can't continue to be that person. If that's who and what you need me to deliver, I'm not going to be able to do it. So um, would there have been a self-consciousness? Absolutely. But would I interpret it as a self-consciousness of David wanting to remain in that box for security reasons? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, even as early as 1972 with the Rolling Stone article where he posed nude and sort of laid bare his, you know, his sort of what he felt was his true identity. You can already see him taking those risks and to take those risks in 1972 versus a little bit later on in the 70s in his career was, uh, you know, much, much uh, more of a, a calculated risk than anything else. And I mean, we can get into the, whole Rolling Stone thing, because I think that, that that article actually turned out to be a really unfair characterization of both David Cassidy and his fans, um, that the fans were dismissed as, you know, um, pre-teen pre uh, or teens who didn't know their own mind, who were being fed, you know, spoon-fed um, this manufactured stuff, and that David was this mediocre talent who just happened to be the package and the vessel to carry this uh, superstardom, and that both sides were coming at it with different interests, but both very shallow interests. That's, that's the way I've always read that Rolling Stone article. So that was unfortunate because um, if you hear how, what and how David had intended that piece to be is a bit of a, um, I guess a coming out of sorts of here's a little slice of the real me. I don't think it captured that. At that age, you're going to be throwing teddy bears onto the stage and you're going to be throwing love letters because you don't know how else to express your love. Mm -hmm. The innocence of yeah. Seven, eight, nine, ten, even into your early teens. We're talking about a decade where, which was probably the last decade of the real innocent teenager. But they had no other way of expressing how they loved him, and so that's right. For someone to demean their their actions of throwing teddy bears on the stage and sending mm -hmm. toys and love letters and great big cards. There's no other way in 1971 that a, a young yeah. girl would be able to say, I love you. It's as simple as that. But for them, yeah. for all of us, it was true love. And it's funny that you bring that up because I was, you know, reflecting on, on that idea too. When I became a fan of David's, I was 14. So I was, you know, you know, I, I was, I was sort of past the, um, starry-eyed throwing teddy bears kind of thing but you know I had never been in a relationship at age or anything so I was awakened to a different image of David I mean he was not Keith Partridge to me he, and to me that was really part of the appeal which I think is what also makes my fandom unique is you know there have been analytical pieces written about how David represented especially again stateside um, a return to innocence or a shelter um, from the dismay of the Vietnam War or about you know, economic crises in the United States and that the Partridge family and David Cassidy were just kind of, their music was a bit of a throwback to a few years earlier. You know, the, the tone of the television show was very palatable, that it upheld family values and all these things. And that was not at all the attraction for me um, with David Cassidy. And in fact, if it had been, if that's what I had been looking for, but yeah, if I was interested in something that was really like, uh, packaged and poppy and prefabricated and innocent, I probably would have been in step with my peers. But I, as somebody who always felt misunderstood, as somebody who's always been a bit of an old soul and felt, you know, a, a, a certain darkness or ache or loneliness in me, um, that's why I think I gravitated towards David Cassidy and becoming a fan of some, you know, I was not naive. I knew I, I met him when I was 16 years old for the first time. I understood that he was a man in his fifties like this, you know, I had no delusions. There was the teenage tug of, yeah, did I have notebooks in school with his picture on it? And did I doodle his name with hearts? Sure. But as I said, was I also reading his um, autobiography and listening to his later material and kind of really getting into the depth of those. But it goes back to, and I mean, it's easy to say I'm, I'm preaching to the converted, but I really think it does go back 
to David. I mean, think about it, the way that the Partridge family was modeled on the cow sills. The cow sills singing group certainly had their hits. And I mean, you'll still hear them on oldies radio, but I can't say I have ever met a person or heard a reference on a TV show in a movie where somebody goes, oh, the cow sills, the cow sills, and still has that kind of starry-eyed adulation um, in their voice. You look at, um, well, actually, it's locally here in Canada, there was a, a group called the DeFranco family that launched, and they were a, a real-life singing family, very much uh, like the Partridge family. They went almost nowhere, and I don't think it had anything to do with talent. Um, I think it, it goes back to a certain charisma and it factor. And look, you know, when you think about it with the Partridge family, they already had the producers of the series and the producers of the album already had tracks under their belt. They had a team of, you know, slick background vocalists who were nameless and faceless as far as the public was concerned, who could come in, lay down the tracks like that, easy as nothing, but they must have seen, you know, and I often wonder what the tipping point was. So on the Partridge Family album, you have some original tracks that don't have David's vocals in them. And I always wondered, what did that album look like before they realized that they had a superstar on their hands? What did that album look like before David's vocals came in? Because when I listen to some of the tracks um, that don't feature David's vocals, they don't really fit the mold. You know, you think of something like um, On the Road from that album. Like that's a, that's a different kind of story than the wistful, lovelorn, angsty songs that David ultimately came to record. So I don't know if new material was written for him at the time, but I think from, again, as a historian and from somebody who has made a career of studying cultural history and knowing a little bit about how the business of these things works, there was something about David that caused the production team to say, we're maybe going to scrap some tracks that we recorded. We're going to invest extra money and time in changing this album because this is going to take it from just an accessory to the show to this whole other level. You know, we're going to rewrite uh, you know, even uh, perhaps whole episodes. I mean, point me in the direction of Albuquerque. There ends up being a first season episode that really kind of mirrors the narrative of that song. And that's a song with David's vocal on it. Did that song exist prior to David? Did it? I mean, you know, I, I could go on and on here. But when you say, can I understand the, the fandom? Can I understand the hysteria? And can I understand the it factor that drew people to it? Yes. And in a way that, again, I think is sophisticated because I think about what we could have had, what we almost had without David. What if they had cast somebody else? There was that pull, there was that magnetism, there was that charisma that completely changed the tone of the music, the tone of the show, before they even had proof that that was going to be the thing. The hysteria and the pinups, people in the industry whose job it was to make the most profitable product knew that David Cassidy was uniquely profitable in a way that they had initially underestimated and they ran with it. And I know the musicians who worked with David had said as soon as they heard him sing, it was like, that's it. This is it. Yeah. We also know that on the first two Partridge Family albums that David's vocals were recorded at a half speed lower and then played back at a half speed faster so that it would sound as though his voice was higher. And I mean, it's a very subtle thing. But you wonder if that had been how he had been initially packaged and marketed to audiences, if even just that subtle difference would have prepared them for a greater maturity in David, because he was, you know, 1920 when he was recording the first tracks um, and then continued to record throughout his early 20s. He was an adult man, but they were trying to, he was cast to play a teenager. They were trying to make him sound like a teenager. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, I think it's, unfair to expect his fan base and audiences to make that switch so quickly when everything that they had been taught to believe about who this person was, was an incorrect autobiography. <laughs> you know, they didn't hear his real voice for the first time on the market. They didn't know his real age when they were introduced to uh, him. He was in magazines like 16 magazine, 16 magazine, not young adult male magazine. Yeah, that's um, and so <laughs> like it's, yeah. You know, we um, we can't discount the impact that that had about how his his career was ultimately read and cast. But I think there are other performers who come to mind for me who had in some ways a similar trajectory to David. I think all the time about what has happened to Harry Styles and how his career has evolved compared to David Cassidy. Because in fact, 
his career was even more manufactured and manipulated than David Cassidy's because he didn't start it, you know, being an earnest, struggling performer. He went on a reality television show. I've got this great voice and I want to be a superstar. It was almost in some ways because the audience was in on that secret and saw how that worked. They bought into the product, but maybe not the image because there was maybe almost a sense of a wink and a nod about who One Direction were. And I think you can see that in some of their songs and videos. There's a cheekiness, there's a playfulness. And I also wonder if something like the transparency of the internet, where these individuals could communicate some more of their individual identity to their fans, um, also helped. There is that breaking down of that fourth wall. You know, we, we don't have the ability to know exactly how that would have looked and how that would have gone for David. But when you look at him speak in interviews, when you read, uh, you know, his book or, or things that he's written, or when you even see him performing in concert, his sense of humor, his self-deprecation, his, I think, um, ability, his self-awareness is quite heightened. I had some really unique experiences, again, that I think were really only afforded to me as somebody who started to idolize and want to get close to get in touch with David when his career was in an entirely different phase, which is he was, you know, he retained a solid fan base. And certainly when I was um, becoming a fan of his, he was going through a bit of a career renaissance. I mean, he was doing quite well on the concert circuit. He had had great success in Vegas in the late nineties. Um, in terms of his life, he was on a really personal and professional high. My impression is that the career that David was having in the late nineties and early two thousands, maybe wasn't the serious dramatic acting career he'd expected, maybe wasn't the super rock star career that he had wished a la John Lennon or Paul McCartney. I've arrived in a respectable, consistent way, but I'm, I'm taking, you know, there was a sense of uh, just more ownership, ownership of, of, of who he was. But what was interesting for me is that because he was successful enough that I was able to go see him in concerts, he was still accessible and out there and and uh, I was able to see him perform, but not famous to the extent that he was untouchable. I, it was quite easy for me to meet him. I met him several times. And what a thrill and a treat that was for me. The first time that I met him, my parents took me to, uh, to see him perform in Verona, New York, in the United States. So it was maybe about a three-hour drive from where we live. And uh, I had written a letter ahead of time that I figured, okay, I'll show up to the venue and I will just go up to the, uh, the customer service office and ask to see their events manager and ask if the event, events manager can pass the letter on to David, right? Because I knew that there weren't going to be, you know, 3,000 other 16-year-old girls waiting with letters to do the same thing. It was just little me. I, I received word uh, that, that they said, yeah, Mr. Cassidy would love to meet you. Come here, come to this store after the show and you can chat and talk. And it was that simple. And uh, I did get to meet him. And um, the wonderful thing, and I don't know how much you want me to go into this because it's in, in your book, Cherish, my um, experience with um, recovering from anorexia and kind of turning to David Cassidy's music and, and career as an outlet to get me through that difficult time. I was able to say to my idol, and it, like, it brings tears to my eyes now, I was able to tell him that he had that impact on me and tell it to him while it was going on, you know, from a really pure and true place. It wasn't, oh, one time 35, 40 years ago, this is a thing I felt, but this is a thing I'm feeling presently now. And um, when I saw him in concert at 16, I was, I was recovered from anorexia, you know? He was able to see me standing in front of him healthy, happy, vibrant, healed, whole person. Mm. And again, because I see that time in his life, that would have been in um, 2002. I hope that as healing as that moment was for me, that maybe that transferred on to David as well, mm. that he could, he could see how he had come out from the other side, how he had turned his life around, how he had known struggle, how he had bounced back, how he had the ups and downs. And then he was on a current high. And here was this young girl, this 16 year old, whose life in some ways that he had not only touched, but saved. And to say, wow, that's the power of me. I had that power. And I'm so much more than, um, you know, than, than maybe that, that image um, and that false idol. I'm not a false idol. You know why? Because there is a depth to me. There is life experience behind me. I do have a message. I do have more than this brand. And here standing in front of me is this young woman who's healthy and alive today because of something that was in me that I was able to communicate to her. And she's alive and healthy. You know, I'm not saying that David Cassidy cured me, but I'm saying that there was 
that emotional private outlet and that I could access him in a way that was also respectful, right? So I didn't have to, I didn't have to stalk his trailer or sneak out. I was able to respectfully communicate things to him through the written word, through, you know, a publicist or a manager or this or that kind of thing and ask, have him invite me into his space so that I felt like when we talked, it was a privilege for me to be there, but I hope in some sense, still a privilege for, for David to have that feedback from a fan um, that he, that that was something that was sanctioned with him and not me running up and screaming to him on the streets, pulling out his hair and, but having civil discourse in a really respectful way. I'm so grateful for that. And as fun as it would have been to have had a gaggle of girlfriends who were in the Cassidy mania with me and as you know, neat as it might've been to be able to experience what it was like waiting for a David Cassidy album to come out. Like I had pretty much the whole catalog, right? It already existed <laughs> when I started being a fan. So that anticipation wasn't there. That same kind of feeling wasn't there, but I think it was a real gift for me to encounter David in the time and under the circumstances that I did. When you explained to him the involvement he had had in helping mm-hmm. you overcome your an- anorexia mm-hmm. what did he say to you basically that he was grateful that he had that impact in people's lives but he was touched that I wanted to share that with him and that he was proud of me for recovering which is like a beautiful thing for somebody that age to to be able to hear you know I don't know as I said to what extent he understood the depths Um, of eating disorders. You know, we're learning more and more that people who go through addiction or people who go through depression or people who have eating disorders, that it's kind of a spectrum, that there's a lot of brain chemistry and activity that is similar. And so again, knowing that what I knew about David at the time and his own admission of struggles, he he would be able to relate to that kind of internal psychological turmoil and the ways that we all cope with those things in different ways. And if you cope with struggle through an eating disorder, that's one thing. And if you cope with it through drugs or alcohol, that's another thing. But I think it's just a spectrum of human experience that we're all reacting to. Had I been raised with the idea of David Cassidy as this perfect idol, this perfect untouchable thing, I don't think I ever would have been brave enough to communicate that to him. Again, where that second generation fan thing, totally different experience for, for me. Um, and I was able to see him in concert four times, uh, met him uh, twice. And the second time that I met him was before a show. And uh, he, he remembered me, which was incredible. Again, probably not something that would have happened back in the 70s if you're meeting tens of thousands of people who all want a piece of you, uh, which was wonderfully touching. And so after we had our little meet and greet before the show and we were, uh, we were attending concert, we were in the front row um, at that uh, particular show. Uh, and in the middle of the show, David uh, pulled me up on stage to sing with him, and I got to sing No Bridge I Wouldn't Cross. And I think it really pleased him because I actually knew the words, right? So this is later stage David Cassidy stuff. So that's what I think it really sold him. He's like, okay, this isn't just the girl who knows, you know, the, the hits. You know, like what a gift. What an incredible gift. One of the things that I said in my um, original piece when I was writing reflections on David Cassidy's life and death and, and his meaning to me was how sad it was for me that I wasn't able to give back to him the same thing that he gave to me, which was, you know, self-confidence and mental health and um, a coping mechanism, a way to deal with those inner demons in a healthy, productive way. And that ultimately the end of his, you know, life story was, was a very sad one. Um, And one, an ending that I don't think any of us fans believe that he deserved. How many of us got through, whether it be an eating disorder or a parent's divorce or a difficult time in school or, I mean, God, who knows the spectrum of challenges of, of his fans, but as many fans as there are, I'm sure he, he touched people and moved them on every level of human experience. And that somehow I and the other fans, um, were we not able to communicate to him his inherent worth beyond the Keith Partridge? I mean, you're getting older, you have wrinkles, you don't have, you know, your hair's not as thick and full anymore. And we didn't care. We didn't care. I mean, was, you know, were those things appealing and attractive? And was that the sparkle that caught our attention? Sure, that's what caught our attention, but it's not what kept us sticking around. You know, for me, it's been almost 20 years. You know, yeah, somewhere, I think he almost understood and believed what he meant to us and to the world. It's silly to bear that kind of responsibility, but I think when you, you know, love someone and people can't hear in, you know, in the audio, I guess we'll use air quotes for that. When you love someone the way that we love or loved David, Mm-hmm. Um, and then to see them succumb to something 
so painful, like a death essentially from alcohol abuse, you do think, what, what could I have done? Well, you know, we didn't know him well enough. We didn't have enough of a personal connection to be able to intervene in that way. But if we had, I don't know, you know, too, too sad to bear thinking about really. Everything he did in his life, fans somewhere, it resonated with them. They go, yes, I know exactly how he feels. That's right. You wish you could have said something to him like, you don't owe us anything but your talent and your humanity. So you don't owe us your sobriety. So when we see news on TMZ that you're arrested for a DUI again, we're not disappointed in you. We're disappointed or sad for you because we think of you as somebody who is hurting, who has communicated over the years the types of hurts and struggles that you have had. And when we see news like that, we are wishing for your wellness for your sake. But I don't think, how, how could he have appreciated that when on Google alerts for David Cassidy, it's, you know, an unflattering mugshot with a reductive headline that makes it seem like he's just some has been addict. Not one of us, and if you read Cherish, as you said, it's, it's highly evident that not one of us had that reaction. We were not waiting for him to fall. We were all beneath him wanting to lift him up. This is the David Cassidy Connections Podcast with your host, Louise Poynton. How culturally important was he? Type of history that I've always imagined if I was going to sit down and write a really in-depth analysis about David Cassidy and his popularity would have less to do with even how culturally important he was in the music industry. Because, because you can compare Cassidy mania to something like Beatlemania, but the Beatles, when they had that cultural shift from being sort of a female-oriented, screaming, you know, a female fan base on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, to being kind of rock gods and icons in 67, 68, when things start to change with Sgt. Pepper, I don't think that you can compare the two things, because even though they were very popular at the end of their career, the quote-unquote Beatlemania that we're referring to isn't what they were experiencing in 67, 68, 69. They weren't touring in concerts anymore. They weren't running around with 14 and 15-year-old girls screaming and chasing them down the streets. They were extremely famous, they were extremely influential, and they were extremely popular. But their career took on a whole different um, tone that they were able to escape. There were four of them. So, you know, maybe it was easier to assert more control over their career when they weren't the lone man out there trying to make decisions about how they were going to market themselves. Because there was a revolution in general from the early 60s to the late 60s that the Beatles weren't the only trailblazers. I mean, they were certainly ahead of their time and probably at the forefront of things. But they weren't out there on the pulpit alone saying, we're going to radicalize things. They were kind of, you know, part of the, part of the machine. Um, and I think, you know, in David's time in, in the 70s, especially stateside, when you have the Vietnam War, when you have the Watergate scandal, when you have the economy taking a bit of a downturn. So the post-war boom is kind of um, taking a downturn now. And so all of a sudden the best front to present is non-threatening and to be palatable, to be kind, to be pleasing. We don't need any more upheaval. We don't, we, we're sick of the Vietnam protesters. We're sick of the loudmouth students. We're sick of the youth radicals. We just want a nice, pretty young man to strap on the guitar sing the songs and put on a happy face. Um, that's, that's just the, the, that's the, that interval that David Cassidy became popular in. And I think it set the tone for who he was expected um, to be. So there is kind of a, a precedent for his popularity with the Frank Sinatra and the Bobby Soxers and then, you know, the Elvis fandom and the Beatle fandom, but it's not the same. It's not the same because of the time in which he, you know, came of age as an artist. It's not the same because he didn't intend to be a musical artist. So he had no preconceived idea of who he wanted to be as a musician at the time. He knew what kind of music he liked and he played on his own, but he wasn't trying to craft a musical career. So when somebody foisted a music career upon him, he kind of went, uh, okay, I guess I'll just do this until it was too late. And he kind of thought, geez, I have a real talent in that because I have something to say. I have uh, art that I'd like to show and perform. And now I'm on this hamster wheel that I can't get off. So all of those factors, I think, make him more than a throwaway story of just another flash in the pan teen idol. From the historian's perspective, like it would be really interesting to me to write a two-part story, which looks at David and his brother, Sean, and their respective careers. Because Sean has 
quite literally the best blueprint of what to do and what not to do. I mean, I got to see Sean Casty perform last summer. Um, he's, you know, he started doing a little bit of touring and he did kind of a storytelling format in his concert. So he'd perform a song or two and then give an anecdote about what it meant to him at the time, how the song was recorded, what it made him feel, and just showed kind of the, the um, I guess the milestones in, in his career. And you could see when he got kind of to the end of his catalog, how conscious his decision was to walk away from the music industry and how wholeheartedly he embraced a career in writing and television production and how fulfilling that has been for him. Comparing even those two careers that could have been, that were similar in some sense, there are similarities there, but the story and the narrative and the outcome is so incredibly different. And, you know, my, my historian spidey senses kind of would love to dive into to those parallel narratives more. And he was already an adult man when he began the Keith Partridge role. And so when he left the Keith Partridge role, he was just that much more adult. So again, you know, I referenced Harry Styles earlier in the interview, or another good example might be like a Miley Cyrus, who was very manufactured by the Disney machine, but was allowed to grow but they were children when they started out and their fans were children with them and they were all growing at the same rate. But David's 10 and 12 year old fans were already worlds apart from who David was. Maybe in their mind, oh, Keith Partridge is 16. So I'm only a few years off from David. I'm a preteen, but he's a teen and somewhere we'll meet in that, the middle. And that was just never going to happen because he was inhabiting, an, you know, outside of uh, his public image, he was already inhabiting an adult world people see him as 16 and then he breaks through from the Partridge family and he starts doing the RCA albums, RCA albums and he's 26. <laughs> like what a chasm in life experiences. So I think that may have been the other thing is that perhaps for some fans or for industry insiders to them, it seemed like an extreme leap. And really his earlier work was very regressive and behind where he was. And his later seventies work was at his level. And we never saw that middle terrain. He never got to, you know, Whereas if he had started in the industry as a singer, even perhaps like Donny Osmond did, being more in line with his audience age-wise and as they come of age with you, that could have been a whole different story. But, you know, I, I do, I, I fault the industry entirely for the exploitation of David as a product. I don't fault the fans and critics for their misperception of his later work. And, and I think their impression too was that he was, that that was inauthentic and that that was him trying to just flex cool points. Yeah. Right. Instead of it being actually who he was. Um, oh, you, you know, what, 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 uh, what 20, 22 year old male doesn't want to be a guitar god like Eric Clapton. And, and yeah, if they had seen him jamming behind the scenes and after hours of the recording sessions and hanging out with his friends, knowing that this is what he was doing, playing and listening to all along. You can point to any moment along the David Caster career timeline and kind of say he did it all. He did it all and he did it all well. And the timing of it didn't hit or the marketing of it didn't hit or just to be that kind of tremendous talent. He just wanted a sustainable, respectable career where he could share his art with the world and have some positive feedback and be, you know, just popular and famous enough that he could make his bread and butter. The culture now of social media and everybody, you know, pardon the expression, but everybody being a fame whore. That, that wasn't him. I'm sure he was more than happy to leave behind, you know, the 25,000 person arenas and have a 1,000 person auditorium of devoted people who respected him and recognized his talent and continued to support his talent. The last show, the last concert that I saw him perform would have been New Year's Eve in 2000. Four or five. Yeah, he was performing at a casino here in Niagara Falls. Well, it was New Year's Eve 2004, so transitioning, we rang in the new year together, so, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, this was my fourth time seeing him, and I was there, this is actually sort of funny, I was there with my first boyfriend, so I was 18 going on 19 at the time, so the past three shows that I had been to with David was like an expression of a love that was both real, but real in a different sense, right? That I still love David. I was still happy to be at the concert, but that now I understood what a, a, a living, breathing, live love, romantic love with a real flesh and blood human who was my own age at my side um, was like. And to kind of, what a special moment in time to be 18 years old. So this boyfriend and I are both huge Beatles fans and David did an acoustic cover of No Reply. And my boyfriend at the time was, 
fine and good humored and had listened to me ramble on and on about David Casty, like he went in with a more sophisticated understanding of David Casty than the average person would have. But when he finished uh, his cover of No Reply, my boyfriend just at the time just looked at me and was like, wow, you know, that slow clap kind of jaw dropping. And of course, David told this wonderful story about John Lennon before he even played the song. Kind of say like, look, I met the guy. I was with the Beatle. We jammed together. Like I know from whence I speak. Um, and then came out with this gorgeous belting, uh, you know, rip your heart out cover of No Reply. Uh, you know, knocked, knocked my boyfriend's socks off. And that was a really special experience too, to be like, see, I told you, like, you are getting to see what everybody should have and was meant to see and probably won't get the opportunity to see. And that was my last concert experience. Um, I, I can say again, what if, what if I had bought tickets to more concerts in the ensuing years? Did I not support him enough? Did I not love him enough? But the thing is, at that point, I didn't know, like, what more was I supporting? I didn't really want to go pay to see him do Partridge Family covers again. Uh, not that it was a waste of money, but I mean, you understand what I mean, Louise. Like, because he wasn't growing, it, it was a bit of a been there, done that. Wonderful experience. Glad I had it. Glad for those fragments and moments when he would have that little bit of magic and freedom on stage and cover something else that wasn't Partridge Family stuff. You know, it just... There was, there was nothing new to support. I would have loved to have seen him in a stage show. Just to have seen him in a stage role would have been a really beautiful, interesting thing. To marry that acting and singing component, to give him a new, different type of material to work with, to see him bring something to life again. You know, it also occurs to me, um, I don't know if you've heard the work that Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett did together. Yeah. Right? Like, that could have been an interesting type of collaboration, too, um, to, you know, not try to fool an audience into thinking, like, you know, repackaging David in his 60s as this young buck or anything, but, like, allowing his gravitas and his wisdom and his soulfulness and his age to lead the way. Or what would you like his legacy to be? You know, it's a great question. And certainly your book is a wonderful addition to that legacy. And I'm not just saying that because you've been so kind to me to let me speak my piece and speak my mind um, about this, but really healing. Like one of my favorite, you know, things to do with the book when I first got it. And my gosh, it took so long to get it. And I know that had nothing to do with you, but oh, this silly pandemic, I couldn't wait. Um, is I would just, you know, I would read a few stories at night in bed with a cup of tea and let that experience of, my fandom and idolatry and others and that connection between people whose stories I was reading. Um, so beautiful. So like sophisticated, but not, not highbrow. Like you could tell that you were just interested in getting at the heart of it, the humanity of it and the truth of who David was and his legacy was. I wouldn't be interested in seeing Rolling Stone magazine come out with an article all of a sudden saying, David Casty was this transcendent, groundbreaking rock artist for the ages whose impact on the music industry cannot be overstated, because that's just not the truth. And so that's why I love that you, as a fan, curated this collection that showed the fulsomeness of David without um, over-glamorizing or over-glorifying or building up to some fake relevance that he didn't have that you captured his true essence so that's beautiful i love that but i also think i don't know why in the years since his death besides your book like i haven't seen any interesting historical retrospectives prince died you know around the same time as david cassidy and there's already been a swath of publications by you know people who knew him or music journalists or things like that reflecting on his career and i understand the difference musically between prince and david Cassidy. but you would think that an artist's popularity skyrockets when they pass, especially when they pass unexpectedly and in a timely way. And it's been, what, three three years now um, oh. since he passed? And nobody has come out of the woodwork and even thought that he's important enough to put something out on the shelf. But that the fact that somebody with that large of a fan base, that large of a cultural impact, that many hits, that much of a presence in our culture left this world with such a whimper? and not a bang, and not a backwards glance, is quite shocking to me. So as far as restoring his legacy, or not, you know, I wouldn't even say re restoring it. I would say creating it, building it authentically, as you have started to do with this podcast and with your work, uh, is really important to me. And to put his career and life in context, 
of not just who he was and what he represented to us, but why he became the thing he became, why he wasn't allowed to become the thing he should have been. All of those things, I think, are really interesting historical conversations that, look, if his life had to end the way that it did, if his career had to take the path that it did, let's have a conversation about that. Let's have a sophisticated, in-depth, culturally contextualized conversation about why a tremendously talented, humble, by all accounts, gracious person. For two times that I met him, it was just graciousness, warmth, kindness, gratitude, and humility. Um, why all those characteristics in a, per- in a person that talented with that many connections to the industry, why his career went the way that it did. If you want a better soundbite of what his legacy would be, you know, maybe his legacy would be... Um, about protecting the integrity of artists from people who would want to exploit their talent and to recognize art for what it is and should be, which is an expression of self that hopefully resonates in the people who receive it. And that artists should have the freedom to create the art they want to see unleashed in the world. And if it's meaningful to a thousand people or if it's meaningful to a million people, um, you know, that's, that's up to those who are receiving it, but that it shouldn't be manipulated and bastardized and packaged to be palatable. Because if there's one thing that David's career shows, it's that people don't necessarily have, industry insiders don't necessarily have always the best instincts about how to package something and make it palatable. I mean, they certainly did with the first few years of his career, but whatever came out following that, um, you know, certainly wasn't the case. And, uh, and finally, most importantly, um, that if nothing else, I hope his legacy is that he was a person who mattered to a whole lot of people. And what more could you want out of life? What more could you want to leave behind than to know that you mattered very much so?